Conversations may run dry as night passes by, but I don't mind sitting in the silence with you. Hi, welcome to Leadership Spaces podcast series, Conversations That Shape Us. My name is Barbara Barclay, and as well as having the delight of working with Elise Cernick, the founder of Leadership Space, I have the pleasure of bringing to you today our conversation with Yasmin Adele Majid. Before stepping into this podcast, I'd like to give you a little bit of information about Yasmin. She's a growing voice as a strong female Muslim leader in Australia. She's already been named Young Queensland Australian of the Year and Young Muslim of the Year. Yasmin was born in Sudan before her family moved to Brisbane when Yasmin was two. Yasmin describes her background as all-round delicious with Sudanese, Moroccan, Turkish and Egyptian heritage. We share insights around a topic of great passion for Yasmin, that is, of diversity and raising awareness about unconscious bias. Yasmin's also just launched her book, Yasmin's Story, which we share insights with you about how to access that on our Leadership Space website. I take up the conversation with Yasmin at the time way back when, when she was 16 and founded her organisation, Youth Without Borders. I hope you enjoy listening to Yasmin as much as I enjoyed sharing time with her. So as a 16-year-old, you're a founder of... of an, Youth yeah, Borders. of Youth Without Borders. Um, and it's funny because at the time... And in the years after that, everyone would be like, oh, my God, it's so amazing that you started this at 16. But for me, it was just, well, I had something I wanted to do, so I did it. And it was a case, I think there's also a level of when you're that young, you just do things without thinking about it. You don't you don't have all the sort of trappings of knowing what you don't know and everything for so me. there was, was no fear There was no fear. There was. I didn't feel like there was a downside. Yeah. I didn't feel like... I didn't ever think, well, what if this didn't work or what if this failed? It was just, this is something that we should do. I'm going to find a way to do it. And I think that's what I tell a lot of young people is that use that passion that you've got now to just get, because as a 24-year-old, it's much more difficult for you to go and start something because you kind of think about stuff so much. Not that um, that you shouldn't go out and start something, but it just, it just there's, there's an added level, I think, of complexity that we bring to it. And I suppose there was, it was never one moment in particular, but it was this sort of realisation over time that I was being given a platform mm. um, and and that was a responsibility yeah. and a responsibility that I needed to, to make sure I honoured. Yeah. So one of the things that I have read about you was that at an early age your mantra was change the world for better. Is that still the philosophy and what you espouse now? I think I don't necessarily sort of go through my life thinking that I want to change the world because I think that, uh, and I read recently that somebody said, you know, they're a bit wary of people who say they want to change the world because that sort of comes with maybe perhaps a level of naivety as to what it will take. But I think, and this is something that I have realised over the last couple of years, I want to make sure that my influence in life and and in every interaction is a positive one. Mm. And that wherever I am, I'm useful. I just want to be useful in whatever it is that I do. I just want to make sure that I'm not 
wasting space, that I'm adding value. And I think bringing that, wanting to add value, wanting to have a positive impact in whatever space that you're in. If your philosophy is about the outcome, will the end ever justify the means? I'm not sure. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in looking at what the end is, the end outcome, the end objective, when it's just as important to ensure the process that we do things through is also ethical and is also doing in a, like doing it in a way that's positive yeah. but ultimately you've got to have some principles that you stay true yeah. to um yeah so and right now one of the areas and messages that is very strong for you to share is the conversation of diversity and the importance of increasing people's self-awareness around unconscious bias mm. Can you share some of your perspectives on that topic? Sure. I think it's the topic of unconscious bias to me is fascinating because I think I grew up, like I think a lot of people in my generation, kind of thinking that the fight had been fought, you know, particularly when it came to gender, that, you know, life was fair for women and for men and we didn't really need to think about it too much. Like why would why would you need to be a strident feminist because – you know, that was something of generations ago. And I think over time, particularly in the spaces that I inhabit in work, um, you sort of realise that actually, although the legislation may have changed, our society still, I think, battles battles with, with patriarchy, battles with, I suppose, a level of monoculture at the top echelons of society. And so there's still a particular demographic that really holds the strings. Mm. Um, and so I think realising that over time and then realising that if we need to change that, we need to also change the kind of conversation that we're having and, and also bring people into it um, was, was how I sort of came into the mm. space of unconscious bias. Because I knew that if I ever talked to the guys that I work with about you know, just straight out racism or straight out sexism or whatever. People don't want to think that they're sexist or racist. Mm. People inherently think they're good people. Mm. By and large, everyone thinks they're a good person. And so how do you say to someone the behaviour you're exhibiting or the system that you're operating mm. in is actually structurally unequal? Mm. The reality is that we don't live in a world that is fair. Yeah. We don't live in a world where people have equal opportunity. And so how do you show people that? Mm. And how do you make people realise that they are operating in that world and maybe contributing to that mm. world? And so you talk to them about unconscious bias. And something I say to people is that unconscious bias is not about conscious discrimination. It's not about saying that you are racist or you are sexist, but it's about recognising, A, that we live in structures and systems that do have racism and sexism within them, but also that we all contribute that and we can also contribute to dismantling those structures. So tell me that then. What are some practical examples, mm. particularly in the social purpose sector, because that's a lot of who our listeners will be, to actually create greater diversity and improve people's self-awareness around unconscious bias mm. in their cultures? I think I'll... One of the things I'll start off with is just giving people an example. And people have probably heard this before. Um, or if they have, I apologise. But if not, it's a good example of how we see unconscious bias. And the story, it's a story, essentially, where there's a young father and his son driving along on a highway. And they get into a tragic car accident and the father dies on impact. And the son is severely injured and they rushed him to hospital. 
The surgeon looks at the boy and is like, I can't operate. Why? This boy is my son. Now, often people think, well, how can that be? Didn't the father just die? And you take a few moments and then you realize, oh, the surgeon is his mother. Now, often when I tell this story, you see people's faces change because they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't think that I held any bias. But the reality of the situation is that, like, you don't ask a fish about water because it's all around them. They don't even realize that the water's there. In the same way, when we think about, you know, structures that are patriarchal and so on, it's all around us. We don't even realize that it's there. We don't even realize it's influencing our decisions. And... I think it's really important also, and this is something that I am beginning to also understand, that we need allies. Like when it comes to gender, when it comes to people of culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, if we want to get true diversity in, in places of influence across the board, we do need allies. We do, And, and I've only been able to, to access the places that I have because I have had mentors and sponsors and allies. So I think none of what I ever say is meant to make people feel guilty. It may make people feel uncomfortable, Mm. but I think that's okay because I think being uncomfortable is where you do the best learning. When you're uncomfortable, you know that you're growing. You know that you're challenging your beliefs. Yeah. So Where I often, there's change, there's yeah, resistance. Exactly. So so I encourage people to sit with their discomfort mm-hmm. and to kind of try to understand why they're uncomfortable or why they're experiencing discomfort and learn from that. When it comes to practical things, I often give a few people or give people ideas on how to be quote unquote good allies. One of the things I often talk about is this idea of mentoring or sponsoring someone who's different. It's it's really easy for us, you know, for people in positions of power to find connections with people that share similar experiences, whether it's loving the same football team or going to the same school or whatever it may be, we find points of connection. And that's that's how we create tribes. That's how we we create community, right? Because you connect with people based based on sort of seemingly innocuous things, but that's that's how it happens. However, if if somebody does not have a shared experience, if somebody is coming from a completely different world, if somebody's a Sudanese-born Muslim girl who went to like a, a primary school that was all full of Muslims and and doesn't actually know much about AFL at all, how is she going to connect with someone who doesn't have any similar experience? So I often encourage people in places of power or people who are leaders in their own space to find people, to actively go out and find people that don't share that same experience. And then also, like sometimes, sometimes it's more difficult to do that, Mm. but it doesn't mean that it shouldn't happen. So I was recently given an example where somebody said, look, you know, there was a position for a gender equality, um, like a a gender equality officer, and the only person that applied was, you know, a young Anglo-Saxon man. And we hired him because he was the only person that applied. And then we got all this flack because how can a guy be a gender equality person? And I said to them, well, did anyone stop and think maybe if this isn't the person that they wanted for the job, that they should go out and look for a person yeah. who who was a female, who yeah. was perhaps a woman of colour? Like, And genuinely this person looked at me and was like, oh, I never thought about that. And I think people forget that. It's not just because an opportunity is there on a website. It does not necessarily, like there are all sorts of blockages that start way before the person puts in an application. 
you know, a, a woman might think, well, I've never got an opportunity, I've never got a chance at that job. And there's so many studies that talk about the fact that women won't put forward their name for something that they are eight out of 10 criteria applicable for, and a guy will put their hand up for a job that's like five out of 10. You know, there's all these studies that say women don't back themselves as much. Or, you know, maybe actually this this woman doesn't, the, the right quote-unquote woman for the job may not even um, have access or know that those opportunities are there. And even... One of the guys said to me, what if a woman applied, a woman of colour applied, and she was not as qualified? And my question was, well, how on earth is that woman going to ever be qualified if you don't take a chance on her? If you don't go out and then take her and say, well, I'm committed to gender diversity and I'm I'm committed to diversity to the point where I will take this person under my wing and train them and show them the way. Because right now, you know, that you know the other bloke may have may may currently tick all the boxes but that's because he has had a a lifetime of privilege and so i think it's it's recognizing that also there are so many different types of privilege that people have access to and i've had the privilege of good education and parents that knew the system and so on and so on so it's my responsibility then to go find other people who don't have that kind of privilege and train them up mm-hmm. so it is more difficult but at this at the end of the day if we are committed to this concept of diversity if we are committed to saying we want our boardrooms and our television and our parliament to reflect the society that we live in, then we have to put in the extra effort. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I mean, there are, there are other small things. I think, you know, it's the so, language that we use. Yeah. It's the... Well, tell me about yeah. that. I mean, there's often the bystander that actually... If you let something go, mm. then you're allowing that to be the level yes. of conversation. Definitely. The standard that you walk past is the standard that you accept. And I think that is incredibly true. And how often do we all do it? Mm. How often do we let innocuous, seemingly innocuous jokes slide or seemingly innocuous um, decisions to be made? I rem- an executive in a company that I was working for once said that she was on a panel for um, like a they were hiring some people or they were doing promotions and there was two candidate there were two candidates relatively equally sort of um, based or one one a guy and one a, a woman male and a female the guy they were like oh it seems like he has plenty of potential let's double promote him mm. and then they were like oh this woman has achieved a lot but we're just not sure if she's ready so we will only singly like we'll promote her once and the promotion won't be as great now this the, the person telling the story was like, usually I would have let that pass. But then it occurred to me that I'm in a situation where I can make an actual difference and I can point out what is going on. So often it's about checking ourselves and checking the people around us. It's even things like when, when we talk about, I often talk about women in male-dominated industries, particularly women in engineering. And some research has shown that there are four ways in particular that gender is dealt with in, negatively in, in technical spaces. The first one is about highlighting uh, gender. So essentially the, the example I always use is I'll walk into a room and one of the blokes will be like, all right, guys, no swearing, there's a female in the room. Now that may come from a place of good intentions, but what it does is it highlights difference and it reminds everyone that, hey, here's somebody who doesn't belong in our group or here's somebody who ha- we have to do something special for to belong in our group. So therefore she can't be an integral part of the group. It's so, it's so small and subtle, but it highlights difference. The second is assigning gender roles. So it's the small things like the woman constantly doing the minutes or the, the woman, you know, 
like giving out the food when the food arrives at a meeting, small things like that, office housework, stuff that essentially plays into a, a traditional stereotypical gender role. And so people then associate the, the female with those things as opposed to necessarily thinking of her as their equal or their peer. The third is that women are tuned out at meetings. So, and this happens all the time without even us realizing it. We might be at a meeting and there's a bunch of blokes and a couple of women and the woman will say something, she'll posit an idea. Mm. And it's as if people won't hear it. And then a couple of minutes later, a bloke may say the exact same thing and everyone will be like, Joe, what a mad dude, great Mm. idea. And it's amazing because that happens so often. And every time I say this example in a speech, I can see people in the audience nodding. Mm. But we don't make a point of calling it out. We don't make a point of saying, hey, 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 it was actually, you know, Mary or Fatima's idea, Mm. right? And so I think it's incredibly important that when we see examples in our daily life of that small, those small things, and they may seem small, but those small things are what allow or what essentially um, make our environment what it is. It's the water around us. So if, if we let those things pass, then it won't be as surprising when we don't want to hire or we don't want to promote a female. It won't be as surprising if somebody says, oh, well, she might want to have a kid soon, so why don't we just get the bloke instead? And the fourth, particularly for women engineers, is doubting technical ability. So it's this idea of I may offer a technical solution, but it's not unless it's corroborated by a bloke that people will be like, oh, yes, sure. And the number of times, I mean, obviously, for for me as a female but also a young female engineer, it's difficult for me to ascertain whether it happens sometimes because I'm young and inexperienced or or because I'm a female. And and it's not so easy for me to sort of point things out sometimes, but it's definitely something that science, uh, the research has shown does occur. So I'm going to play devil's advocate and say, why does it matter? Why does it matter to create greater diversity would it be in a social purpose sector and where it be in any organisation, why does diversity matter? A really good question. And I think I think it's also a question that's in the mind of a lot of people, at the back of the minds of a lot of people. Why go to all that trouble all that effort, and right. try and change the way that yeah. I'm thinking because this is supposed to be good for our organisation? Why does it matter? There's a couple of reasons. So firstly... The customer base, quote unquote, that we're dealing with, the people in our society are diverse. So we need to make sure that the decisions that happen, the, 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 the decisions that are made in society are reflective of the people that you're trying to serve. And also, it's just so much better. Like the research has shown that diverse teams make much better decisions. And I can pull out numbers of, you know, w- boards with women on them proving that they have X amount more money on the bottom line and so on and so on and so on. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, a diverse team with not just necessarily, you know, a different gender or different ethnic background, culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, but just diversity of thinking, an engineer and a doctor and a sociologist and a psychologist, they come up with completely different solutions to three different engineers or four different engineers. We have to, like... From a business point of view, it is dangerous to have everyone around the table thinking the same way. That's how you get groupthink. That's how you get blind spots because the people, everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you. And then nobody ever challenges that. And you have to be challenged in order to make better decisions. So from a business point of view, 
Diversity is required in order to make sure that you don't have the blind spots, mm -hmm. in order to make your decisions more robust, and in order to reflect the business, like the, the customers that you're serving. And then from a society point of view, I think we miss out on so much. Mm -hmm. We miss out on so much when we think there's only one kind of leader, when, when we think there's only one kind of way of doing things. Like imagine the possibilities if you had a young Indigenous girl leading the nation. Just imagine. Just imagine what it could be like if there was, you know, all sorts of, of nations and, and backgrounds and genders and sexualities and abilities and disabilities on our TV. Imagine the possibilities that could create. Because the way I see the world is completely different to the way someone with a different perspective sees the world. And bringing those things together, that's how you create innovation. That's how new things happen. And also it's a visualisation and a role modelling that somebody actually sees yes. someone like them in that role so it creates an empowerment. 100%. And I say, I say to people all the time, imagine you are, again, like a young Indigenous girl walking through Parliament, for example, and you see all the pictures of the leaders of the country. How on earth are you ever going to imagine that you could possibly be one of them when none of them reflect you or your experience? It is incredibly powerful to have role models that, not even role models, just people in society that you see in the media who look like you, who share your experience, who in some way you can relate to, because then you think, oh, I could do that. It opens up doors beyond, and then, and that is so exciting, mm. I think. And so that's why it's important to make sure that we have examples and, um, and spaces for diversity. Tell me now, let's progress into, a, into just philosophies around mm. leadership. Tell me how all the different personal perspectives and growth that you've had are influencing your leadership style now and the development that you've had as mm. a leader. Interesting question. I think my leadership philosophy, quote, unquote, um, is really strongly linked to a couple of things. One is to my faith. Mm. And it's not something that I talk about often because I think Religion is something that's quite misunderstood in society generally and not really um, valued in Australia in particular. But for me, my faith plays a role in the sense that I do everything not for me but for a purpose that's beyond me, right? And that purpose is an understanding that I've been provided with opportunities and gifts and that is not that is not something that I should that, that I'm allowed to use selfishly. That is, one day I will be asked, I gave you these gifts, what did you do with mm. them for society? How did you make the world better? And so these gifts and these opportunities are a responsibility mm. for me. Um, and, and I guess that's that's much more philosophical. But ultimately, for me, every opportunity um, and every award, every platform is a space for me to use it for good. Yeah. And the second, I think, is my parents. And I think that this is something I've only sort of become cognizant really of in the last few years, is that my parents sacrificed everything, everything, in order for me and my, my little brother to yes. have a better life. Mm. And when you realise, like when you, you start to realise how big a sacrifice that is, you realise that you can't waste that. Like it's it's not something that... It's, it's such a precious gift as well. It's your parents saying, we believed in your potential before you even had a personality. And so, again, 
it's this kind of belief in in service really in in everything I do so so leadership is not necessarily about me thinking I've got the best way or the best um sort of vision it's me saying I understand that things need to be done and I've got a platform to do it maybe one day I won't be the best person for the job I think being a good leader is also recognizing when you need to to step aside when you need to provide an opportunity for somebody else when you need to swallow your pride and say actually you can do it better i think it's 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 such a humbling experience um and it can like i i always say to my, the people around me please keep me grounded because i think that my fear is believing too much of the hype right cuz yeah. cuz like you know as you sort of progress through life and as as you do more and more things and people give you pats on the back you can start to believe that you can start to believe that you are so great and so infallible but it, but the reality is you are a person who is a, like the reality is for me i'm a person who who is where i am because of a whole bunch of things because of the people around because of the opportunities because of the privilege and so that is not something that i can take for granted mm-hmm. and it can it can disappear at any moment it is a fragile mm-hmm. thing so to constantly be grateful for that to constantly be to to treat that with kid gloves and essentially make the most of it while i can because nothing lasts forever and i think having that in the back of my mind constantly being constantly uh, and i think again it links to my faith realizing that i'm in this place because you know my god allah wants me to be in this place so i have something to do here what i was hearing and then you named it was that your leadership is about service So what is next for you hearing the service conversation the leadership conversation um you know you're such an optimistic person what is what is the next place that you see your service um being required Good question I don't think I know but I think that's okay so I'm still I've got a couple of balls in the air so to speak um obviously I'm still in my full-time role as a mechanical engineer as a drilling engineer so that takes up a lot of time and for me a lot of people say to me well Yasmin isn't it time that you gave that up but for me what that does is give me a a grounding but also a level of technical skill that i think adds depth to the other work that i do it also gives me access to a world that is completely different from the social space so learning to speak that language learning to be in that corporate space in that technical space is very important to me um so i think i'll definitely stick with being an engineer for a little bit longer but also so i'm i'm working on on a book which hopefully will be published in feb 16 march 16 and that is essentially i think a conversation starter about a whole bunch of different things that I think I will probably continue to talk about for mm-hmm. some time. So I talk about a few things but one of them is, you know, the experience of growing up Muslim and migrant post 9/11, which is an experience I thought people understood but apparently, you know, and it makes sense if you didn't have that experience, you wouldn't know. But so kind of talking about what that looks like, kind of also talking about the strength of women from quote unquote the east because I grew up with amazing powerful women all around me but those are the kind of women that someone would look at on the street and think is oppressed so kind of trying to tell a different story um women being incredibly strong and powerful in spite perhaps of of the environments they're in and also kind of talking about the space of women in male dominated spaces what diversity looks like 
you know, in, in, in a very multicultural society um, from a gender and, and race and religion point of view. So I think for the next few years, I want to make sure that these conversations continue. It's great to see some of this stuff have um, a bigger place. I yeah. think topics like feminism and unconscious bias and so on have really become in vogue for, like, on, for the last couple of years, yeah. which is awesome. So trying to make those conversations a little a little bit more mature, a little bit more sophisticated. And and this that social change is so much more difficult, but also m- quite powerful. So seeing where that all pans out. And yeah, we'll just play it by ear, I think. Um, I've always kind of jumped on opportunities whenever they rock up. Mm. So yeah, we'll see when the next one happens. It's been a Inshallah. pleasure. Any final insights for our social purpose uh, visionaries who are listening? Anything you want to share? I think something I often say to the school kids, actually, that I work with is to never underestimate the impact that they can have. And usually when I, when I, when I say that, it's because, you know, they're, they're young people who may think that because they're young, they can't really do anything. And my message to them is, you know, I was able to start an organisation at 16. You can do that too, but even if it's not that grand, you can change the, the thoughts of the people around you. Mm-hmm. But I think... Also for people leading their own movements, their own um, worlds, whatever whatever world they inhabit, not to underestimate the impact that you can have simply by changing your thinking, simply by changing your language, by, by offering an example that people may not have seen before. I think it's incredibly important that we are self-aware, that we become more self-aware, that we try to sort of think, well, how am I... How am I presenting myself? What kind of language and behavior am I allowing in my company, in my space, in my organization? Am I letting certain jokes pass? And I think for me, for leaders, it's understanding that you're no longer in the trenches because it's so much easier to be in the trenches, essentially, kind of having the same kind of banter that everyone else has, kind of having the same kind of um, attitudes that everybody else has. But I think to be a truly cha- a, a leader that truly changes things, you have to be what others aspire to. There's nothing more powerful than than our actions to show the people that we're trying to lead that the world should be a better place. Yasmin. Yasmin Abdel-Majid, it's been a pleasure to have a conversation that certainly shaped me and I hope it's shaped other listeners um, on this podcast. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Bob. And good luck, everyone. It's a wild ride. Our conversations may run dry as night passes by, but I don't mind sitting in the silence with you.